Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Canadian firefighter and the man behind Fire to Light, Brandon Evans. So in this conversation, we discuss a host of topics from living in Costa Rica, the journey to India that ultimately led to him studying under the Dalai Lama, trauma in the fire service, meditation, organizational stress, the importance of compassion, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over... And this is a free library of over 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Brandon Evans. Enjoy. Well, Brandon, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. We tried yesterday. Um, I know you were in a, a public library, which is not known for excellent Wi-Fi reception. So we've rescheduled to today and uh, you sound amazing. So welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks for having me here, James. Yeah, you know, uh, we travel around quite a bit. And so you kind of got to take take some risks sometimes. They don't always work out. So here you go. So where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Yeah, so right now I'm in uh, Sable Beach in Ontario, Canada, and we're uh, we're hanging at a cottage uh, on Lake Huron. So before we even get to your timeline, I think I want to jump ahead to Costa Rica. So talk to me about what made you kind of take some time off and, and take your family to Costa Rica, and then kind of talk to me about the contrast between what you were used to in most of your life and what you found there with your family. Yeah, it's an interesting, um, there's an interesting series of events that took place. So my wife and I both traveled quite extensively before we had children. And so it was something, I found myself at one point in India. And when I was there, there was like 10 and 12 year old kids who were literally running this guest house that I was staying at. And I was like, man, this is crazy. It's so different from what I'm used to. And I just thought, how cool would it be if I were to bring my kids here when they were young, when they were 10, 12 years old to experience this kind of thing? How would that have changed my life and how will it shape their life? And so we fast forward to COVID. My wife and I ran a uh, CrossFit gym. Um, We were closed for almost two years. We had just opened a year and a half prior to COVID happening. And, um, we were suffering incredible financial loss because of that, like talking like close to half a million dollars. And so 2022, January, 2022, I made the decision to close the gym. And that was like a massive lesson in surrendering. I just knew that I needed to do it, not just from a financial perspective and a a business perspective, 
it was the writing was on the wall. <laughs> like this, it's not working. Uh, it's going to take me twelve to eighteen months just to get back to break even based on the numbers that we were seeing. But I knew in my heart that just I had to let go of it. That there was other things that were waiting for me, and I didn't know what they were. And so we took a few months, and I did nothing. In December 2020, if I backstep a little bit, I was part of a team and we extracted a woman from a house fire. It was a homicide. She was beaten and burned to death. Um, I helped meet the crew at the door. That they, A crew brought her to the door and I was a crew that we met, at her, met her at the door, pulled her out of the house, put her on the driveway. And there's this like massive burnt turkey laying in front of you. And we go home from that scene and my wife had cooked a roast chicken dinner for me. and I couldn't eat it. So this critical instant stress starts to kick up and I've got this massive financial stress with, with COVID, with running a business in COVID that just simply wasn't allowed to open for sometimes the most ridiculous reasons known to man. And so after all these things happened, there was a massive process of healing that we can maybe dive into later. Um, I let go of the gym and then it was the first time since I had kids that there was nothing on the bill. It's just my firefighting career. Nothing else was happening. And so I just let things kind of settle. I started writing a book. And then this concept came to me about a trauma awareness program as I reflected back on what I had gone through on my own um, and the processes that were there. I took a look at what was available, what I knew was available, what wasn't available within the fire service in terms of healing and in terms of the awareness around what it means to do the jobs that we do from a mental health perspective. And so I just started, my entrepreneur mind started going, oh, like, I think I could really help a lot of firefighters um, by positioning things a little bit differently. And so I set the template for this program and I started getting really, really deep into it. And my wife and I were having some conversations and we said, hey, remember that thing that we always wanted to do that we've always talked about with our kids? Like, what if I could get a leave of absence from work? Like, what if we could do that now? Where would we go? Who cares where we go? Like, what if we could get, what if we could do it? I just need the time off. And so I proposed my program to my chief and my deputy chief. And there was a little bit of back and forth and I was fortunate. They were pretty supportive of what I was doing. I asked for an unpaid leave so that I could really focus on this thing and give it the attention that it needs. And they gave it to me. So I, I got a year off. And so I kind of came home and I was like, it got approved. And we were like, wow, okay. And so we started putting the, putting the pieces in motion and um, Costa Rica just seemed like a really great place. And so we, we packed up again. Um, our kids, since they were little, they've traveled with us around the world. We've, taken them to Bali and Africa and Spain and a few different places. And so this was a bigger trip and it meant a few different things. You know, are we going to rent our house or are we going to sell our house? The housing market was like went on a crazy spike. So we said, screw it. Let's just sell it. So we sold our house. We got rid of all of our things. We left with four suitcases. That's all the possessions that we currently have. And we went to Costa Rica and we just said, we'll just figure it out when we get there. Last minute, we changed places from the north to the south of Costa Rica on the Pacific coast, just because, don't even know why. 
and we found ourselves living in this little town. Um, there's an incredible school that we found there for our kids that are just it's really, really in alignment with our children um, in terms of how they learn. It's suiting them really, really well. We're watching their confidence grow and spike and it's been a really beautiful experience. And so, yeah, we just, we said, let's do it. And we dove in and it's really interesting because we're just as busy. If not, I'm, I'm busier. I just, I just spent five months doing an international research study where I've interviewed over a hundred fire chiefs on five different continents. And I've done all the legwork, right? There's no money coming in. So it's like, I'm sending all, doing all the research, sending all the emails, trying to contact and identify who do I contact? What streams do I have to go through? And then I spent the last few months um, writing a report on it, trying to write a formal report on, on, on my findings and what is the current state of mental health within the fire service. And so it's interesting, the vibration, the frequency, the energy of the jungle in this place where we live is a very um, calming effect. It can be very harsh at times. You know, I lost, we lost a lot of things due to mold because things mold so quickly in the jungle. You bring all these wonderful, all these things down. You just got rid of all your stuff and then starting to mold and get ruined. Um, but at the same time, it's really calming. And so we're doing the same things, but it's, it's in a different energy. And so not being in a city, for example, there's just less hustle and bustle. There's less worry. There's less rushing to go here and go there and take the kids to this thing and take the kids to that thing. And so it's been a really unique experience um, because the process of life is very similar. We wake up in the morning, we get the kids ready for school. We drop them off at school. We come home, we do our work. It's very nine to five ish. Um, You know, the things that are different is instead of rushing the kids off to go play hockey or go to, I don't know, dance class, we're going surfing at the beach or we're going to an incredible river in the middle of the jungle. And so you're, it's like, we're always just connected to nature because we live in nature all the time. Um, And so it's been really, really fascinating to just observe our children going through this, um, going through this experience and witnessing them and who they are and just seeing, you know, seeing a different side of what life, well, what life can be, you know, it's interesting. So I've had quite a few conversations on here about education. I had a guy, Passy Salberg from Finland, talking about how holistically they look at the child in their schools, you know, and it's not about standardized testing and grades. It's all the things. What are the what are the differences that you're seeing in this Costa Rican school versus Canada? Um so for one, it's a really small, it's a small school. There's about um, there's less than just less than a hundred kids at the school. The approach, um, the main focus is of the child. And so the focus becomes not on academia and it isn't that academia doesn't happen. It, it, it very much happens at the school. So they don't run tests uh, they're experimenting this year with a little bit of homework, but it's very loose. Like if you get it done, great. If you don't, well, that's okay too. Like, you know, we want you to, we, we want to make sure that, that you're comfortable, right? They want to make sure you're comfortable. So my daughter, for example, she struggled a lot with her academia, um, reading and writing, and she's really smart. So she was able to fake it, right? 
oh yeah, she sits down and she reads for 20 minutes a day, but then we come home and she's not reading at all. It's like, no, she's not reading. She's just looking at the goddamn book. Like <laughs> she's not doing the work. <clears throat> and so they were able to f- focus. So my daughter has a journal and in the journal, um, the first two pages, one is um, about her light and the other one is about her shadows. And so they start talking about these different, uh, the, about the polarities of life with these children. She's 10 years old. And so my son will go through a very similar process. He's a little younger. He's six years old. And so the focus is on that individual child. And where is your confidence shining now in this space? So my daughter, for example, um, hasn't yet learned the ability or she doesn't thrive in the area of expressing herself through written form. But she does excel through expressing herself through talk. And so that's what she does. She's allowed and given the space to use her voice, not in a handwritten test because we must write because the box needs to be checked that you can that you can that you can write all the letters and write the paragraphs and all those things. And so they the care, compassion, and love for the children <clears throat> in the areas in which they are confident to allow them to shine quickly spilt over into academia. Whereas what we found um, here in Canada was that you needed to check the boxes. It wasn't that teachers don't care. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the way the education system has been bred, the way that it's delivered, the way that it's supposed to be done is that you need to check all of these boxes. So do the written test, make sure you can read. By grade four, you need to be able to read this. In grade grade five, we're going to bump it up a little bit more and you should be, and here's the KPIs that we need to focus on for your reading for this grade requirement. Whereas at our school, the kids are at now, they put you where you're best fit. You know, if you're, if you're gravitating towards this social group, well, then they put you, they put you with those kids and they focus on your learning abilities around around you, around that place, around that environment. So where you're comfortable and confident, they allow that confidence to shine. And then they slowly trickle in all the things of academia. So now my daughter, and we're only talking like, this hasn't been years. This has been only a few months. She's waking up. She's picking up a book. She's reading on her own. She's reading to her niece and nephew. uh, Now that we're back in Canada, up at the cottage with them. So she comes home. She takes out her books. Like, let's do the homework. I want to get it done. I don't want to fall behind. And so when the focus becomes on the heart, um, magical things from what we witnessed happen versus when the focus is solely on the mind, it creates a lot of confusion for the child um, because the children are so connected to that um, fifth dimensional aspect of themselves, their consciousness, their spirit, whatever you want to call it, their soul, their energy. They're so in their imagination Right, their imagination hasn't transformed into anxiety yet, which is what happens with most adults. Right, <clears throat> we focus on our future, we focus on our past, we become anxious about those things. The kids are just in their imagination, and it's this beautiful place to allow them to thrive. And so, the focus remains in that magical place of being a child, and that allows the mind to develop in a specific way that caters to them so they're not doubting themselves, thinking, Man, I'm a really horrible reader. 
they don't focus on those things as much. They're focusing more on because my tech shows me that I'm not up to up to par with my peers, that I'm different. Oh, now I must be labeled that I have ADD, ADHD, all of these things, whatever it might be. They cater to the children in a very different way to allow them to shine and be loved. And they are loved. And um, yeah, it's, I, I don't know. It's like incredibly, incredibly magical. I don't know how we found, how we found this place. Um, but whatever it is they're doing, it's working. Well, firstly, I mean, that's so good to hear. When I have these conversations with people, I look at myself. When I was at school, you know, my dad is a veterinary surgeon. My mom was a teacher. I was a straight C student. I mean, just not excelling in any way, shape, or form. Loved sports more than academics normally. I really enjoyed the sciences, but, um, you know, maths and geography and some of those just, you know, bored me to tears. Then fast forward like over a decade, well, a decade technically, um, I find myself in fire academy as an adult with a burning desire, no pun intended, to learn the things. Now, all of a sudden, I'm a straight A student and go to paramedic school, straight A student. So it, I mean, I think a lot of us have all felt that, whether we're in the military, first responder, or whatever profession, when you find that thing that you love, it ceases to become work. It becomes a passion now. And so igniting that fire in kids, whatever that looks like, it, you know, it's not like you just, you know, some of these schools where they have no structure whatsoever. I mean, that's the other end of the spectrum, but kind of finding a fusion at least of the academics, like you're saying, but also the child to find their niche. Like my little boy almost failed out of a school and he had tutoring at night and all kinds of stuff just to keep him where the boxes could be checked. And I really just pushed for it because his friends were in that year. And I thought his his self-esteem after the divorce he'd been through, mentally it was going to be worse if he was held back. There was going to be shame and that kind of thing as well. So, And he did it. He stepped up and he worked and now he's thriving you know, in certain areas. But it's when you empower that child, when you give them self-esteem, when you give them something to be excited about versus shut the fuck up, show up at eight, sit down until four, go home, you know? And there are some phenomenal teachers in the US. It's just the system that they have to work in that fails them over and over again. Totally, yeah. It's completely the system, right? You know, <clears throat> my kids are in a very unique school right now. Um, and they're very fortunate. You know, my son comes home and he's absolutely filthy. Like, absolutely filthy every single day he's exhausted he's tired our kids are in bed by 7 30 because he's doing what kids should do he's out playing there's this um expectation i i think in in the western north america anyways in our in our public school systems that we're treating our children like adults right i mean we have to meet that nine to five, I think, because the adults are going to work. So who's going to watch the kids and what does that look like? Um, but then they go through most of that day with this expectation that you should be acting and performing in the way that adults do because we're breeding you to be an adult opposed to allowing you to be a child and having fun and allowing you to fail in a positive light, in a positive manner without it seeming like you know there's repercussion or that you've done something wrong because you got a two out of 10 on your spelling test and making you feel bad over that versus just showing you some love, 
and working through the process of what does it mean to be resilient? What does it mean to get up and do the work again? What does it mean to be loved and hugged and cuddled? And what does it mean to be allowed to express your emotions and cry? And what does it mean to bring community together so that when you are upset and crying, that there's a team around you, a community around you that supports you to help you heal from whatever's happened, whether you fell down or whether you are just not feeling confident in yourself because of where you're at reading. And the kids come around, the community comes around um, to help build build people up. You know, I think we've shifted into a very individualistic society um, in the West. And there's a lot of components and areas where we've where we've lost um, like this community aspect. We've lost the community feel as we try to keep up with the Joneses um, and as we try to get by day to day, as we try and go and spend twice the amount on groceries that we did only a few years ago. Um, we've lost this community aspect. Um, and so what we've noticed where we've gone is, is it's there and it's thriving and people rely on each other a lot for everything, right? In part, there's a lot of expats there. Um, and so it's a new territory, it's a new country, it's unfamiliar to most people. So there's a level of importance of, of relying on each other and the level of safety of relying on each other. Like, where do we go to get groceries? Where do we go to buy shoes? I don't know. And so we rely on this and they teach this method within the school as well. The school's built on community. So as my daughter will help younger children with their schoolwork during the day, the older children will come and help my daughter with areas of hers. And when they do performances at school, it's not just here's the grade one class, here's the grade four class, here's the grade five class. It's the children coming together. Sometimes it's just upper years, sometimes it's just lower years, but there's a very huge community feel. And so I think you and I can both really understand what that means, especially being firefighters um, and having that experience, what it means to be in a brotherhood, a sisterhood, a community, um, and there's also pros and cons to what those means on multiple levels as well. Well, just again with my observation with my son, where he's thrived is his cross country and track team, which is a community, you know, a shared purpose. JROTC, the uh, Junior Army Program, shared purpose, and he's risen through the leadership on that side as well. And so, you know, you see that when when you're all part of something bigger than yourselves it pulls you together when there's shared suffering it pulls you together just the same as in uniform mm. and then when you see the repression as an englishman watching alcohol in america you can't do it till you're 21 you can drive a death machine at 15 with a fucking you know seven and a half minute driving test go go fuck some people up knock yourself out but you can't have alcohol you know so then you get this beer bongs and you know fucking ping pong bing bong or whatever the hell they call it and people are upside down with hoses down their throat and all the europeans are like what in the fuck are they doing but we were all raised you know if you want a glass of wine when when you're 12 with with sunday lunch that's okay you're not going to become an alcoholic you know they take away the stigma and the same when i lived in japan the 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 respect almost is to an extreme where you never ever challenge authority so whether it's a fire department or a business or whatever so people are very obedient and the people are sweet and i think there's so many pros to that culture but what i watched 
is when they let their hair down, holy shit. I mean, they would drink into oblivion. If you look at a lot of the graphic cartoons, they're extremely explicit in the comics. Um, and so, again, it's that drawing back of the bow and then you let go. And I think, you know, we, we kind of touched on this before we hit record. You look at that that rigid nature of a lot of the school structure and now we've got kids identifying as everything as you talked about you know we've got kids that are demanding a litter box being put in in a school because they identify as a fucking cat you know and then we're like oh you know this is okay no it's not okay because that child being given the environment that you're talking about in the home and in the school would probably have never got to this point But what we're doing now is catering for every single person's mental health failings. And I'm not saying that people who truly identify as a different gender, that's a whole separate thing. That's that's been there since the the dawn of time. But I think there's another gray area of people that are just fucking confused because they didn't have that community. They didn't have that ability to really explore and, and play and get hurt and fail and all these things that would probably send them down a very different path than no one's looking at me. I'm a cat. Totally. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a fascinating time, right? Like we didn't grow up with uh, screens in our hands, right? I remember when we got our first computer, I remember after that getting the internet in our house. Um, And so, I mean, I don't know what it's like to be an adolescent living in this day and time. I can only reflect on what I know as an adult. I think moving through these last few years with this pandemic um, has done a lot of incredible things, both pro and con, right? So what these things do in one aspect of, oh, I identify as a cat and we've got the pendulum swinging all the way to one side and pushing those boundaries is how far you can actually swing the pendulum, it seems. It challenges all of us in our ability um, to accept things or not. And that becomes self-reflective. Can I accept myself? Can I accept my own experiences? Can I accept my own humility? Can I accept those of other people? And so I think COVID, as challenging as it was for everybody, it forced us all to be in isolation for a moment of time. A lot of us probably just, you know, dove into these cell phone things. And so we're not isolated anymore. Now we're connected to something. And there's a sense that there's a group of people, probably a larger group of people that are continuing to lose more and more connection with themselves through the avenues of media and society of trying to constantly be connected to something. There's also another group of people, and I think this group of people is growing as well, where we're saying, whoa, like, how do we become more in touch with ourselves? How do I learn more about myself? And I think the more, from my own experience, right, the more disconnected that I've become from myself, that's when I've been in the in the hardest times of my life. When I begin when I've been really confused and a lack of understanding, and why is this happening to me? focused on that. Why is this happening to me? Why am I missing out? Why is there this fear of missing out? Why is no one listening to me? Does no one think I even exist? Maybe I'll identify as a cat today. Versus saying, why is this happening for me? 
what can I learn through this experience? Right? Being a teenager in itself, whether it's today, whether it's 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago, it's a really challenging time. There's a lot of things from our bio, from like from our own chemistry that's happening that we don't even know about. So all these things start to happen. We're growing, hair starting to show up on different parts of our bodies. We're starting to dive more into our minds. Our minds are expanding and they're growing. And we start to lose touch with ourself to go through this journey to maybe connect back with it later on in our life. Some do, some don't. And so I think through it all, as confusing, weird, crazy as some of it may sound, I think it all has to do with acceptance. And I think to go through something like COVID on a global scale, it gives humans in the world an opportunity to understand more about our minds. Like I believe that our mental health is improving, even though we're in the middle of a mental health crisis, even though from a firefighter perspective, more firefighters are going on leave today than ever before. And that number is not slowing down. It's, I believe it's only going to increase and probably exponentially over the next decade. As we try to figure out from a reactionary perspective, what the fuck do we do about this? However, what I also believe is that it's giving us an opportunity to understand more about who we are to understand the depth and intelligence that our mind holds, the power and the control that it has. And I also deeply, deeply believe that it is always presenting us with opportunity to move away from the mind and connect with a different aspect of ourselves that maybe has just not been as loud, maybe forever, maybe for a period of time, to connect back with the self on an energetic plane to say, wow, maybe I don't have to listen to that mind anymore, whether it's my own mind, whether it's the mind of my ancestors, whether it's the mind of my society, the mind of my government, the mind of whatever governing body is around me trying to put influence and peer pressure on me. Because I think we always know what we're supposed to do. The mind might not know, but in our hearts, we know. And as we look back on our life, we can reflect and say, fuck, I knew I fucked that one up. I knew I shouldn't have said yes to that thing, but I did it anyway. Presents a learning opportunity. And there's other moments where we say, I knew it and I did it. And I'm so grateful that I did. And I didn't know what the outcome was going to be, but I tried anyways, because we never know what the outcome is going to be. We think we know what the outcome is going to be, but we never fully know what the outcomes, what the outcome is going to be. <clears throat> And so this state of um, confusion, of, of mental health, of trying to identify all these areas of mental health and what that means, I think it's really just here to say, hey, wake the fuck up. There's something else happening within all of you. And although those things may all be true, there's also some other magic that's happening that you can step back from step into and say, oh, maybe I can discover something that I didn't know about myself. Maybe I can face my own humility opposed to always thinking that I'm right about everything and opposed to labeling excuses on every single fucking thing that goes wrong in my life that I blame on somebody else. Maybe I can take the blame for it and shift my life around. And so I think <clears throat> that those perspectives are slowly starting to grow 
and filter out. Now, part of that is because I live in this really unique place in the world, um, in Costa Rica, but also it's happening in conversations all around the world, not just there. And we're seeing it in small pockets, even within the fire service of departments that are making drastic changes that have gone against all kinds of traditions that are small shifts that seem right, really massive and that are changing the way that people are thinking and acting around the world. So it's really confusing. It seems really messed up. It seems really weird. Um, and it's all like, can you accept it all and just move on with who you are versus what somebody else is doing? Well, I agree with you completely. I think we're at the beginning of a paradigm shift. I really do. However, to make sure that we enter that door, we have to have the conversations about not only the last three years, but obviously years prior to that. And what I see is there's a resistance to any, you know, we talked about the whole canceling of, of conversations, you know, if you work in a fire department, for example, or these these things that need to be discussed. And there's there's almost like a stigma now to talking about the pandemic. Well, you owned a business that was absolutely part of the solution to the vulnerability of people towards a virus. What we saw was that gyms were closed, parks were closed, beaches were closed, you know, local farmers markets shut down, but you could get fast food delivered to your home, you could get alcohol delivered to home, and you could binge uh, Netflix. So just before we kind of go into your fire service journey, talk to me about your perspective. You're living in Costa Rica now, a beautiful, you know, green country full of you know i would assume a lot less toxic you know uh, food available to you a lot more kind of organically holistically grown what are your observations of decisions that were made and again like you said it's not so much blaming it's learning from what wasn't done well and what you know have you drawn from those two or three years as you know such a personal impact with you with the closing of a crossfit gym um, that we can learn from next time something like this happens? I mean, I think, you know, if I had to listen to myself sooner, um, we would have made decisions sooner and it would have shifted things. I think we get so, and this is like, this is completely comes down to our, um, our health, right? Uh, our mental health, our physical health, our emotional health, our spiritual health. We listen to everybody else. Even when you know, we listen to what everybody else says. We put trust in things because we don't even know why. Or oh, our parents trusted it. Or we've always just trust, we've always gone to this doctor. So I should trust them about my health. They've got a they've they've got a PhD behind the name, an MD behind the name. So I need to trust this person because what do I know? And maybe you're right. But you know what we found is through trusting ourselves, it leads you to other individuals that don't just give you like validity, but <clears throat> it's taking responsibility for your own life. And we we weren't fully doing that before, right? When a system is is seeming to work before it crashes, you still try to hold on to it. I'm holding on, I'm holding on, I'm holding on, I'm holding on. Because that's what's known and what's known is comfortable even when it becomes uncomfortable. And so the biggest lessons that we've learned 
are to trust in the unknown. And that comes from trusting your gut because the mind thinks it knows, but it doesn't always know. It's that intuitive part of yourself that knows. And so as we've shifted to a place that offers a much more holistic and healthy lifestyle, there's pros and cons, but there's more alignment. We found we found community that is more in alignment with our beliefs and values and way of living. There's a lot more acceptance, and this isn't just from expat communities. It's the country as a whole, right? They have this saying, pure vida, it means pure life. You know, what time are you going to be there today? 10 o'clock. Okay, you didn't show up until two days later at one o'clock. Pure vida, bro. Like, <laughs> such is life, right? And so we're so used to living everything so regimentedly. You better be here at 10.30. The game starts at five o'clock. And we drive ourselves crazy over it. It causes so much stress in our life. And there's a lot of times where it's like, I, I was in this place where I'm like, why the fuck am I doing this? Why am I living life this way? Am I happy? And so the pandemic comes into place <clears throat> and it... <laughs> It strips, us, it strips us of all of our control. And so I think one of the biggest lessons that I've learned is that I may not actually control anything in my life. There's very few things that I can actually control. I think my mind thinks it controls all of it. However, what about the car accident? that someone else smashed into me and my family two days after we showed up in Costa Rica. There was nothing I could have done to avoid that. And so it happened. And so I can say it's a random act. I can say, why did it happen to me? I can allow it to shift my perspective in a positive or negative manner. And I could have turned around and came home and be like, this place is not safe. I'm out of here. Because the ambulance ride, the hospital, nowhere near the standards of what we see in Canada. Or I can shift my perspective to be like, hey, we're all okay. And life is okay. And it's happened. It's happened. I can't change that it happened. So how do I want to reflect on that what's happened? So I think the, the biggest change is, you know, we have a lot of fresh fruit. I'm around nature all the time. So there's an energetic difference being in a forest or a jungle versus being in a concrete jungle. That's just, that's just the way it is. You can measure this shit. It isn't like made up. You can, you can measure it. So there's an energetic difference. There's opportunity. You know, the ability to see opportunity changes as you start to believe what is or is impossible for you in your life without judgment of others, but through knowing what you want to do, how you want to live and being open to accepting and surrendering to what life throws at you. It just is such a game changer. It actually seems really stressful, but it alleviates a lot of stress. So as we move into unknown territory, it causes a lot of fear. But the more we can accept that unknown territory, it actually eliminates fear because we start to turn that fear into excitement. And I can be nervous by not knowing what's going to come. And I can either be scared of that or... I can learn to be excited about it because I now know that those things are changing my life. 
during COVID, every week I was scared that, were they going to close my business again? What rules are they going to change for me again? How the fuck am I going to feed my family? How am I going to keep the doors open to this gym? I was living in a state of fear that was instilled on me. It wasn't until halfway through COVID that I said, whoa, you know what? I'm not watching the news anymore. I'm going to turn the news off because this clearly isn't serving me anymore. I said, I'm going to stop drinking alcohol because this clearly isn't serving me anymore. I'm going to stop doing the things that aren't actually serving me, even though everybody else around me is doing it. So there's choice in decisions and they're always there. So what we can control is if we move left or right. We can't control that our environment will constantly change. We can't control what other people will do to us. We can't control if the sun will or won't come up tomorrow. But the choices, the millions of choices that we have opportunity every single day to choose, we can choose them. We just need to learn a new language, right? I call that the language of the intuitive. Once we start to learn that language, then we can make other decisions. I think there's so many people, especially with substance abuse that's growing within uh, our industry of, fi- uh, of the fire service. It's always been there. That don't want to do the things they're doing. They just don't know how to make a different choice because they keep listening to the same language and they don't take any opportunity to try and learn a new language. Not French or English or Spanish but the language of the intuitive that's there, that with language that's challenging every decision you make. And so it's letting go of the control has been the biggest lesson and diving into what we know and learning to get comfortable with the things that scare you the most <laughs> and the unknowns of life. Well, I know prior to the fire service, you went on quite extensive travels talk to me about india the dalai lama you know there's some of the kind of spiritual journey that you found yourself on before putting on uniform it's funny right james like i talk about this unknown stuff and the time when i dove into it the most i was completely unaware of it i'd spent about 14 or 15 months traveling around the world um lived in New Zealand, Australia, all through Southeast Asia. Um, and I went to India and I, there was no agenda. I didn't have, there was zero agenda. It was literally, what am I doing today? I woke up one day after, after, uh, hiking through the Burmese jungle from Thailand into Burma, spent a couple of weeks at a orphanage. This was during genocide in Burma. Um, on a Shan State military base where they had over 600 orphans uh, on in their camp, <clears throat> and a friend of mine had was had been to India, and I was like, "Oh, that sounds kind of cool." So I, I finished this stint uh, working, or just wor- I wasn't working; I was just helping volunteering at this orphanage. Uh, my friend of mine was teaching English there, and I booked a ticket to India, and so I went and I spent three months in India. And I did a little bit of research on the plane and I got there. I love the mountains. So I wanted to go spend time in the mountains. And all I knew 
was that the Dalai Lama lived in India. He'd exiled there. And so I thought, oh, that'd be kind of a cool place to go. So I bought a cheap bus ticket and I went to McLeod Ganj, the Haramsala in India. And you can go into the temple, you can hang out there and you can see it. And I was at a, I was eating food one day at this little restaurant and you just sit down. The woman who runs it, it's Tibetan. She does not speak English. She just puts food in front of you. You eat the food and you pay her whatever she, she tells you to pay her. And that's how it works. And the woman next to me said, are you going to the teachings next week? I said, what are you talking about? She goes, oh, His Holiness is putting on these, these teachings next week. Um, you just got to go down to this little shop and sign up and it's free and you can show up. So a week later, I found myself in the temple with like a hundred other people, three days of teachings with the Dalai Lama. I wasn't on any kind of spiritual path or one that I knew of anyways. Um, I just found myself in this position, in this place of my life with this opportunity presented for me because I'd taken all of these other steps to get to this place where I was. And so I sat there for three days. Um, and the biggest thing that I took away from that was he'd said, he goes, at the end of the day, it's just you, your family, your friends, they can all vanish. They can all disappear. They could all be killed in some catastrophe. You could be lost at sea. And the end of the day, all there is is you. And can you be okay with you? And I live by that every single day. And, you know, there's moments in my life where I'm not okay with me. But on the big picture, I know that I put in the work, the effort, the discipline to learn how to be okay with me. I question the things that I'm not happy with. And so it was that experience. It was those three days. I didn't know at the time, but they completely altered the direction of my life in terms of discovering the unknown parts of myself. Um, and I think there were times when I thought I would discover it all, um, but it's clearly not the case. And it's just this beautiful evolution of self-discovery um, and creating healthy habits to deal with the worst times in my life and the best times in my life. And most of the time, <laughs> the monotonous moments, the day-to-days, the dinners with the kids and the frustration with the children as a parent that you have to deal with. And those things carry with me every day. And um, I think I'd be a very different person if I hadn't taken those steps and had some of those experiences. So that was like the catalyst for me in my life of just starting to observe my life in a way that I never have before to become in touch with the parts of myself that I didn't know anything about. So walk me through the journey from literally being taught by the Dalai Lama, which people, which people probably spend tens of thousands of dollars to do, to <laughs> your journey into the fire service. Yeah, so I kind of knew... Um, you know, like you said earlier, like I was that C student, you know what I mean? I wasn't an F student. I wasn't an A student. I would try real hard, especially in the biology and the chemistries and, 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 and rock up with the C spending, getting tutors and spending time after school, studying research, all this stuff. And when I was a kid, my best friend growing up. And, uh, so my wife and I, we started dating, we were young, we we're high school sweethearts, like 15, 16 years old. 
and her father, uh, Gary Wilton. Gary was a platoon chief, so he was a firefighter. And so I had the influence of these two men in my life. My father owned uh, an insurance brokerage with his brothers. And I knew that I did not want to work at an insurance brokerage. That's what I knew. And when I looked at um, these two men in my life, these two firefighters, I thought, man, like they're always happy. They're telling me all these great stories. They love their job. So I said, I don't think I'm going. I convinced myself I wasn't smart enough to go to university. And I wanted to become a firefighter. And so after high school, um, I started applying to fire college. I didn't get in right away. I had to go back and I had to reapply again to get in. So I did some other schooling. Um, and I started working as a contractor, as most firefighters do, um, building homes and renovating homes and all that kind of stuff. And so I knew as a kid, as a young teenager, that I wanted to become a firefighter. And so I meet the Dalai Lama. I go through this experience. I come back and I was confused. I met a lot of people that were doing a lot of interesting things around the world that I never heard of before. And there was a lot of opportunity and a lot of things that I could have shifted my direction. But at the time, Ashley, my wife, she was coming home. We kind of separated for three years and she was heading back to Canada. So I headed back to Canada to chase some love. And I was passionate about firefighting. I wanted to give it a stab. I knew that I could, I knew that I could do it. I didn't want to fail at that endeavor. And so I dove back in and took me a couple of years, but I eventually got hired and, um, The evolution of me as a firefighter is interesting. You come in, you play the cards, you be the rookie, you do what you're told, you go through the, you go through the one uh, being harassed as a rookie, then you become the harasser, uh, <laughs> right? When you're the senior enough firefighter and you play the game, you become a part of the team. I learned the things. I excelled in in college of firefighting. I, you know, won awards for the top student in the class and all those kinds of things. I just dove into it. I loved it, and what I didn't realize right away was that um, it gave me a platform to really express my compassion and express compassion. Um, and I didn't realize that, you know, I was the, the young firefighter. I wanted all of it. I want all the car accidents. I want the fires. I want the, I want the dead people. I want all this shit until it starts happening. But, you know, most of the job, I was very confused initially because I'd be going to these calls and it wasn't just firefighters, but the first responders would show up, the ambulance would show up. So we're separate services up here in most of Canada. And I was always taken back. I'm like, why are people such, why are there so many fucking dicks? Like, why are you being an asshole to this person? Like, they called 911. Like, why are you yelling at them? They can't speak your language. Yelling at them isn't going to make them understand what you're saying. What, where is the compassion? So maybe on my second year of firefighting, we went to an, a car accident and car into a bus. Everyone thought the car driver was drunk. I listened to two medics get out of the ambulance and they looked at each other and they said, hey, did you grab the compassion? And the other one said, uh, you know what? I don't think we're going to need it today. Oh, okay. And they walked in to go treat the patient. If that happened now, I would have been up and down both of those medics because I had the confidence in my position 
but I was a young firefighter and I was just, I was told to shut up and listen. So that's what I did. And I didn't like it. And so as I evolved in my career and grew confidence in my career, it allowed me to take that compassion and really put it into the work that I do, whether it's in the crew, whether it's with my captains, whether it's challenging uh, my district chief over racial things that may or may not have been said around the table, whether it's challenging my deputy chief being harassed because of the length of my hair and there's no policy in place. But the biggest thing was like giving people hugs, holding their hand, just looking them in the eyes at calls and just being there with them. Like our job is to be compassionate to people on the worst day of their life. And then going through my own critical incident stress, going through this trauma, this buildup of trauma that I didn't realize had happened you know, nine years prior doing CPR for over an hour on a 16-year-old kid who hung himself, whose mother was yelling at us over her shoulders the whole time. I didn't realize that, you know, why was that, why was the image of that and that experience continuing to pop up in my life time and time again? There were specific, we all have specific calls that come back, haunting or not, they just come back. <clears throat> and so as I started to, I, I wanted to learn more about my mind, right? Like I had these bouts of insomnia where I couldn't sleep. And then it brought me back to meditation. It brought me into learning about hypnosis. It brought me into learning about breath work. And that helped me with my sleeping. It helped me get back to sleep. And so I started just reading more books. I started reading more and learning more about the Dalai Lama. I don't consider myself a Buddhist, but there's a lot of Buddhist philosophy that, that I'm into. And so... I started reading books on psychology, books on quantum physics, books on religion, self-improvement books, just about um, entrepreneurship, whatever it might be. And that journey just spills over into my profession. It spills over into gym room talks in the fire hall, especially when COVID pops up. And we have this issue of vaccinations within our service with everywhere in the world. Are you, aren't you? And that thing caused a lot of confusion amongst some firefighters. And so we start having these heart to hearts. We start witnessing the lack of acceptance within the fire hall and having to reflect on that being like, wow, like some of these people are literally some of my best friends. Like what's the most important thing here? Why do I give a fuck what you do or don't put into your body? Why do I care? Someone's telling me this, someone's telling me that. You know what? I'm just going to stick to love. I'm just going to stick to love. And so I think the biggest thing that <clears throat> the experience with the Dalai Lama showed me was that it's okay to ask for help and that uh, although I need to be okay with myself, it doesn't mean that it's like a, a selfish journey, right? I need help along the way. Nothing in society, no one accomplishes anything by themselves. Who picks up your garbage, right? Someone's got to pick it up. Doesn't mean that that job is less important than the person on Wall Street or the firefighter or the astronaut. If one of those components in society and community doesn't work, then the whole thing is fucked. The whole thing becomes fucked. And so the community aspect, the compassion aspect, the understanding that if I become a better person, 
every day, strive to be my best. It's going to help other people. And when I got over focusing on the negativity of COVID, this is what this 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 is what my trauma taught me. It taught me how to be in love. I went through this process of pulling a woman out of the house, of yelling and swearing at my four-year-old who had done absolutely nothing wrong. He's fucking four years old. And I found myself screaming at him being like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Because I'm stressed out because someone else canceled the gym membership because somebody else canceled my gym because somebody else shut the thing down. And so it allowed me to go through a phase of humility to look at myself in the mirror and be like, well, this is who you are. And this is who you are. And this is who you are. And this is who you are. I'm all of these things. I am someone who yells and screams at my kids. I am someone who's sworn at my children. I am someone who loves my wife and loves my kids. I am a great father. And at times I am a shitty father. At times I'm a great firefighter. At times I'm a shitty firefighter. I'm the one who's been the backbone of harassment in the fire hall of rookies who come in and let's see what we can do to make fun of them. Like I'm really fucking good at making fun of people. And I'm really not proud of that anymore. <laughs> I'm really not. I grew up in a, in a hockey room. In a, and so this is what I thought was normal. And so it's allowed me to face my own humility, um, to allow me to be with myself and to allow me to see that that woman through a series of neurolinguistic programming, self-reflection, breath work, and psilocybin, it showed me the love that exists in our world. And so now this is language that most firefighters are like, what the fuck is this guy talking about? Right? <clears throat> But those things were like really traumatizing and they fucked me up for a long time. And in a breathwork session, my soul and this woman's soul collide over this horrible scene and the fire gets thrown into the sky and turned into a beautiful sunset. And I just see our souls embrace and this image of a pumpkin to paint the cane in her garden pop up. And the first message that came to me was, oh, this woman had enough love to give back to the earth, to put a pumpkin to cane in her garden. Well, that's kind of special. And yes, she was a victim of a homicide. So what did she do in order for this to happen? Well, maybe she didn't do anything. What the fuck do I know? And what does it matter? We all fuck up. I fucked up plenty of times in my life. I've done many things that... <laughs> That, you know, I don't, I wouldn't say I regret them because I've learned from them, but that I just simply shouldn't have done because I fucked up. However, this experience of love is also present simultaneously, always. So this took me into writing a book, which I've put on hold because of the endeavors that I'm doing. But I went through this journey of like, well, and this was through the shaman where I did my psilocybin ceremony. He was like, you know, I love my computer because of the things that allows me to do. I love my lamp because you know, I love lamp because it, because it provides light for me when I need it. I love the cup because it holds the water. What if I didn't have the cup? What would hold my water for me? And so by going through this process that was shown to me of identifying love in any inanimate object and in any stranger or person and in myself, it started 
to shift the way that I was thinking. And it started to relate back to 15 years ago or 17 years ago, however long it was, to the teachings from the Dalai Lama. And this is what he was talking about. Where your focus goes, the energy flows. I'm sure you've heard that a million times, right? But maybe some people listening haven't. It's really easy to sit around the fire hall and talk about all the negative shit or all the ways you hope or wish you want to change the department without putting any effort or action into actually changing them. And the conversation is always negative about other people's actions. It's really fucking easy to do that. For some reason, it's not as easy to shed some love on it and to shed a little bit of light and to say, hey, maybe I'm fucking doing okay. We experience so much trauma in our life as first responders. And we are so fucking hard on ourselves. And I believe that those things are very directed, like they're, like they're linked, right? Like, and we do this as people, not just as first responders. We all do it. But it's like, why? Why do we have to be so hard on ourselves? Well, these are lessons that we were taught from our parents, from our grandparents, from our societies, from our communities. And there's another way to do it. So as I continue to reflect on my life, I've found the most lessons have come from looking backwards and being like, oh, why did those things happen? And I can tie most things back now to that moment of being there, of being this like this moment of light in my life to be, and, the, and the catalyst to really, to, to the most amount of change to say, wow, that opportunity showed me um, how to trust in the unknown, how to trust in myself, how to continue to discover myself through areas that I'm quite confident and unconfident in. So my ego, thinking I'm the best, thinking I know everything, right? We all have this, but sometimes I'm wrong. And the areas that I'm not comfortable in being like, well, just fucking try. Like you won't know until you try. So just get up and, and go and try. And you know, it all came from just trying something different, doing something out of the ordinary that I knew I wanted to do it. Like I knew I wanted to go travel, but I didn't know why I wanted to go travel, but I did it anyway. So sometimes you just got to go and do the fucking thing regardless of the outcome and regardless of any excuses. Well, that compassion fatigue, that is something I actually got a, a really, I guess, disheartening perspective on right at the beginning of my career. And I wrote about it in my book. I was in Hialeah, very long story short, came in as person down. Um, there's a bunch of groans going through the fire station when we respond. I'm a brand new guy like, oh, what's what's this reaction for? We get there. There's a man on, on the pavement on the sidewalk. And there's Hialeah police officers already there. And then these other firefighters kind of just continue the semicircle around this dude. One female cop is kicking him. Hey, buddy, get up, get up, just with her foot. And I'm going, what the fuck is going on here? So I kind of just go down and check that, you know, he's breathing and <laughs> all that stuff. And then go through his pockets like we're taught in school. And, you know, are there any idea, any things that will suggest what's going on? And I pull out a piece of paper and it's a blood test. And this man had just learned that he's HIV positive. And yes, he was drunk, 
But how many people, if they got that kind of news, would probably go dive into a bottle? And that lack of compassion at that moment that this guy was viewed as a bum or whatever fucking god-awful two-dimensional shitty label they gave him of this profession that most of us on day one have a lot of kindness and compassion, it was extremely jarring. And at first I was just angry, but now on the other side of the whole mental health conversation and sleep deprivation, all these things, now I go, oh, doesn't excuse it, but I now know why it happened. So, and I've watched, you know, people that were so calm early in their career become hair trigger as we've gone through, myself included, you know, on certain days. But I, like you, I think this is where we align. I always clung onto that compassion. You know what I mean? I've been spat on and called every name under the sun and had to restrain people and fight them and drug them and all kinds of things. But unless they were an absolute piece of shit, I always went in initially with that compassion. You know, and certainly didn't look treat anyone any differently because they happened to be, you know, work in the streets or a gang member or, or homeless or whatever. You know, until unless you did something at that moment disgusting, then okay, that's a different thing. I'm strapping you down and knocking you the fuck out. But until then, <laughs> you're getting nice, James. And I think that that is a kind of a real paradox because just as we're also one of the fittest members of community when we first entered the fire service and then you see 10 plus years later that's not the case anymore it's the same with the mental fitness you know i think a lot of us are kind and compassionate and i also you know i wonder not only is that breakdown you know that unaddressed childhood trauma and the stress of the job and sleep deprivation and organizational betrayal and all these other things but also a coping mechanism is to just not care anymore subconsciously so if i disregard that compassion and I don't feel something for that person that we just pulled from under a bridge, then, you know, I can laugh about it, can look down my nose about it and just get on. So it's it's an interesting conversation because it really smacks against the very reason that we even stood on that diamond on the grinder in the very first day. But it's not a deliberate thing. It's a devolution through the physiological and psychological spiral that we find ourselves if we're not able to catch it in time. Totally. I mean, I think it, I think in the profession, right, in general, it, it speaks volumes to the fact that we simply don't have enough training, awareness, or education about what this stuff actually means. We're so out of touch with ourselves and we become so out of touch with ourselves through our trauma because we are in this very unique uh, profession where we experience exponential amounts of trauma in comparison to the general population. And there's this um, notion or this unwritten law that you said yes to the job, so you should just be able to do it. And no one signs up for PTSD, right? We're all big stuff, tough, strong firefighters, and we're not going to get hurt, especially, especially through psychological injury. That's not going to happen to me, but that's not the reality. The hypocrisy is large on many facets of the job. Um, and we're all still little children and we're all still so influenced by peer pressure. My father-in-law says this all the time as 42 years in the fire service, you got a shitty negative captain, you're going to have a shitty negative crew. You got a really positive captain who's into training, you're going to have a crew that's really positive and into training. You may have a few people come and go, but the majority of them, that's what they're going to turn into. 
And so, and this is true to all of us. We're influenced by our peers, right? We're influenced by our peers. I'm not playing hockey anymore. I'm surfing because my peers are surfing. So we go surfing. <laughs> and so we, it happens on so many levels and we start to shift in that manner. And as a rookie, when the talk around the table is negative, well, guess what? Really quickly, you're going to start to mold into that, whether you, and you don't even know that it's happening. You don't even know that it's happening. And through that process, what happens? We lose touch with ourselves. And part of it is that in our profession, we don't have any training on how to stay in touch with ourselves. We don't have any compassion training. It literally doesn't fucking happen. Never. We've only started to implement these things, proactive measures towards our mental health within the fire service at large. And some of the departments or countries that are leading the charge, they're doing fantastic work. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying no one's doing the work, but the inconsistency in training that I've seen through my research is like, it's, it's shocking, right? We talk about physical health. Well, we, I think we all know that if you exercise one time per year or one time per month, you may not be the fittest person on earth. This is how we treat mental health within the fire service. I've given you the training. You should know now. Okay. Or I've given you the training, but I haven't done it because I don't need to, because I'm of a higher rank than you. And so there's hypocrisy. This leads to, no, it leads to lack of trust and all of these, all of these incredible things. And so I don't think it's really of any direct, it's no, it's no one's fault. Right. This isn't a direct fault to firefighters, to fire chiefs, to administration, to any specific individual. It's just as the community has shifted and altered these ways. You know, I'm up in the air. I'm like, you know, I, I like there's room for black humor, I believe, in the back of the truck on the way back from the call. Because in part of it, in those moments, we need to respond to another call. So how can I not think about this thing right now? Because I still have work to do. However, these things need to be understood. They need to be discussed. They need to be divulged. They need to be looked at. And we need to know how they might show up for us 10 years down the road, 30 years down the road. We don't know. There's so much unknown about our trauma and how it shows up for us or how it's connected to the rest of our life. And I think the biggest thing is like, we don't know much about mental health in the fire service. I'm not trying to be the expert on this. I just know what I've gone through in my own journey. I know what I've seen and witnessed. I'm not a, I don't have the education. I don't have all the credibilities. All I have is my own lived experience, is the research that I've done, is the compassion and heart for people and knowing that we're all better and we all can be better. And some calls, man, we crush it. We are so good. And all we've done is like hug, hug a couple people and that was all they needed. And we all left and, and everything works so beautifully. But I've been on too many calls where it's like, why are these people treating people like shit? Like, I don't, I just don't understand it because who cares if they called you because they have a tummy ache. You said yes to the job. So if you don't like your job, go change your job. <laughs> I think there's a lot of that. If you don't like it, go change it. You said yes to be here. And like, wouldn't you want to be at someone having a tummy ache? 
versus a car accident where three kids are dead in the back and mom's alive in the front seat and you're going to try and extricate her from the car knowing that her three kids are dead in the back and she's got a, a broken rib and her head smashed open. Like, do you want to go to that call? I don't want to. I never want to fucking go to that call. So is that really where you want to be rather than being at someone's tummy ache? No, the reality is you want to be at the tummy ache because no one's fucking hurt. No one's hurt there. That's a great day, man. That's a great day. It may not be as you know, adrenaline fulfilled as some of the other calls. However, that's a good day. So I think our perspective on what we think we need to be doing versus what we're actually doing and the lack of self-reflection and understanding of ourselves creates this turmoil within fire services and first responders to create this compassion fatigue as it's like, oh, fuck, here we go again. It's like, right, well, maybe you spent more time training at the hall instead of watching TV or movies. And we're all victim of this, myself included, not trying to point anybody out. <laughs> but if we put more effort into ourselves, into what we do, into being compassionate on a regular, consistent basis and drop the negative conversation all the time, then it would probably change the output that we put into our communities because we're all actually there for the right reason. We're all there because we give a shit, because we want to help, because we are the chosen ones who can do this. Not everybody can do what we do. But why don't we want to do it to the best of our capabilities every single day? You just kind of made me think of an analogy. I've done a lot of traveling recently. The way I look at it is... People in the fire service, a lot of them, whether it's you know the the line personnel, chiefs, administrators, are on one of those people movers, the travelators, the things that people stand on because they're too fucking lazy to walk in, in an airport. And you're on, you're not. You're standing on the floor, and so you're like, "Why are you doing this way?" Well, because this is this is where we are, you know. And and, and it's good. I'm gonna have to walk all the way back to get off this thing if we're gonna actually do it a different way. And so this is what it, people aren't waking up thinking, oh, I'm hoping, I hope there's going to be another firefighter suicide today. But so many people are on these fucking travelators that they're looking at each other going, well, that person must be the crazy one because we're all on the travelator. So we're obviously doing the right thing. And that's just not the case. Now, in this study, you have studied a huge spectrum of, of uh, officers in the fire service internationally. So firstly, talk to me about this range and then pull... Rather than focus on the negative, because we're, I think you and I especially are pretty aware of that, talk to me about the people forging the path internationally in the fire service when it comes to mental health. Yeah, you know, I wanted to, I knew what I knew, um, and I knew that I, I, I wasn't a chief, um, and don't have much desire to be one. Um, I enjoyed the job. I enjoyed the job on the back of the truck. Um, but I wanted to gain a perspective from the leaders of the fire service um, because it's going to be different from what I knew from the floor. And so it wasn't about excluding firefighters. I was like, I want to understand what the decision makers, what their perception is of the current state of mental health within the fire service. And the initial intention wasn't to go very international. I was like, I'll call some chiefs in Canada, get into the States maybe a little bit. And before I knew it, I was in Australia, Malaysia, Tokyo, uh, the UK, Europe, uh, New Zealand, just went all over the place. 
And so, so the first big positive thing is that everyone was willing to talk about it. Like there was a lot of work and effort, don't get me wrong, into creating and trying to figure out how do I even contact these individuals, especially some of the higher level. I mean, I guess they're all high level, right? I've talked to some of the biggest fire departments in the world. Tokyo is the largest fire department in the world, 18,000 firefighters. And I got to speak with them, right? I talked to the deputy commissioner of a London fire brigade. He said yes to an interview. And so what I learned very quickly was that everyone's concerned about the current state of mental health. If there wasn't an issue, no one would be talking to me about it. Right. If my research study was on, do you want to do black boots or red boots? Which one do you think is better? I probably wouldn't have had as good of a response. And so it's a positive that people are aware of it and they're willing to share and willing to learn. There was actually a lot more vulnerability than I expected from fire chiefs. And this isn't just from ones who are leading the charge, but other chiefs being like, yeah, Brandon, we don't have anything. We're not doing anything one of the largest fire departments in, I'll just say in North America, one of the largest spends less than a thousandth of a percentage point on mental health programming. And fully admitting like, yeah, we need to do more. We just don't know what to do. <clears throat> and so that's a very positive thing that, that these individuals with such high ranking which could probably be associated, uh, you know, there's some kind of ego that's evolved there, especially within the fire service. Not that this individual person had a massive ego, but the willingness to be that vulnerable to say, yeah, man, like we need to do a lot more than what we're doing. It, it, it kind of took me back to be like, wow, like people are really compassionate and caring because the sense on the floor, um, maybe not in every fire department, but it's like, ah, what the fuck do these chiefs know? They're so far removed from what we do. But a lot of them are, they're, they're there for the right reasons. They're just pulled in so many different directions sometimes. The biggest things that the chiefs have done who are leading the charge is listen. They've actually taken the time to listen to the firefighters. And it's come, and it hasn't come without struggle, right? They've, most of them have all gone through their own, their own stress, different severities, um, different diagnosis. Um, a lot of them have, you know, they've lived through one or multiple uh, line of duty deaths, firefighters, suicides, cancers, whatever it might be. So they've suffered a lot, not just from the calls they've gone to, but from their sisters and their brothers within the fire service, right? Like this is a profession that we all hold very dear to our hearts. And it's because of the camaraderie that's been developed over the years. And the biggest thing I believe that these individuals have done is share their story. So it comes back to that vulnerability piece. They've shared their story of trauma, of PTSD, of critical incident stress. Um, some fire chiefs have taken their own leaves of absence um, to come back and then implemented the availability for other chiefs to take leaves of absence within their department. Um, like this is a huge, this is a huge fucking thing. So by those chiefs sharing their stories, it creates this open narrative to be like, oh, fuck, like the guy with all the stripes, 
he's the one sharing the stories. She's the one telling us of all the the the, the horrors and the sleepless nights and, and and all the suffering that she's gone through to come through on the other side and now have this positive attitude. Well, maybe I can do it too. So it helps to create. My observations are it's helped to create and instill this level of trust within these departments. The um, the issue of uh, or the excuse, however you want to put it, and and the reality of budgets and financing always comes up. Right, one of the biggest things we don't do it enough because we don't have enough money. We don't have enough this. There's no funding for it. Blah 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 blah. So the other perspective is like, well, we're spending the money anyways. So why don't we spend it in a different place? Why don't we try to do something different with it? So along with being vulnerable, these chiefs leading the charge have said, hey, you know what? Let's do something different. And if it wasn't them saying, hey, let's do something different, it was the fact that their incredible leadership capability allowed them to trust in somebody else to take the initiative. Right. So what I mean is another firefighter or captain or another battalion chief has come up to them and say, Hey, I think we need to do something about our well-being program, about our mental health program. And this is my this is what I'm proposing. And the chief said, I think you're right. Let's go do it. Not always that simple, but they're taking the steps opposed to, yeah, yeah, yeah put on the list and and maybe we'll get to it uh, whenever we get to it. But we got all these other things that we're trying to figure out right now. So we'll just focus on those things and and who knows if it's going to come along. And so by the chiefs, and I'm not talking, some of these departments aren't, I think some of the chiefs are, are you know, oh, it must be easy for that chief because there's only a hundred firefighters in their department. That's a small volunteer department. So it's easy for the chief to get around. You're from the United Kingdom. Every city in the United Kingdom has like one or 2 million people in it. They're not small. <laughs> they're not small cities and they have a reflective fire department. We're talking thousands of firefighters on every department within the United Kingdom or most of them anyways. And I always say that because some of these departments have come from out of the UK where they've taken massive strides, the chiefs, in creating positive momentum through listening to what their firefighters have to say, identifying the problems and issues, facing the organizational humility that we need to change these things regardless of how entrenched some of the traditions are. And they've taken the action to do them with including the firefighters opposed to excluding them, which I think happens more often than not. Firefighters become excluded. The chiefs leave it up to themselves. Everyone's trying to put their own rung on the ladder and make a name for themselves versus working towards the collective. The biggest thing is just perspective. Most departments around the world are doing the exact same things. So it isn't that things aren't changing. They are. And I do believe on a global scale, we're moving in the right direction when it comes to how we train and educate around mental health and wellness. However, everyone's doing the same thing. It seems to be a snail's race for most departments. And the few that have thought outside of the box and taken action outside of the box are the ones who I believe are leading the charge and who are making the largest influence and who are now actually attracting firefighters who are leaving states, leaving their jurisdictions, trying to go to other jurisdictions to places where they know they're being cared for and they're not just 
a number. Our policy and procedure has, I mean, this is all government, right? It's fucking destroyed everything and completely removed the human component. So a chief out of Canada said, it was, we failed when it comes to the mental health of first responders because we treat first responders like first responders. We don't treat them like the human beings that they are. And so the departments that are leading the charge have recognized this and they're taking very human approaches. The chiefs themselves are going against policy and procedure and they're writing new policy and procedure to make sure the human is taken into consideration with the things that they're doing. So, I mean, there's really just a lot of compassion. They've recognized the compassion and they're putting it back into the work that they're doing. Well, one thing that you touched on with some of the feedback was we're spending the money anyway. And this is a really, really important point because I've talked a huge amount about the ridiculousness of the North American firefighter work week. 24 is to me, you know, I think the in 14 years of firefighter, I think that that is fine because we live in a firehouse with a you know a bed and we have so much to do in a 20 you know in a shift i think you know shortening it firstly the the alternating days and nights are just horrible anyway but secondly we have so much to do training and all that kind of thing that i don't think 20, uh, 12 or 8s or 10s are really enough time to get the momentum for a shift but counties and cities bleed money through the workman's comp claims, the actual, you know, the insurance themselves, the uh, medical retirement, disability, the overtime covering holes. And so front loading that into your workforce, adding a fourth shift, because I'm a huge you know, proponent of 2472, would solve so many of these issues. But then even you touched on another area where, oh, but how are we supposed to hire another shift? Well, you create an environment that people want to work in. That's how you get people lining up outside your door. This is 2023. Young potential candidates are researching going, what in the fuck is going on here? They're divorcing. They're taking their own lives. I'm not sure I want to do this. I really want to serve, but maybe I'll serve in a different capacity. So that investing in your people piece is so important. And then obviously, one thing I've talked about is putting mental health at the front door with the you know, PT on the day one of the academy, you're also starting to do X amount of counseling. Forget the fucking polygraph and the written psych tests. We know they're bullshit. Take that same money and give someone five sessions instead. Create an, a relationship with a counselor. Make mental health normal to a rookie. But you invest all of that you hands down will, I mean, you will revolutionize the fire service, make a work week that actually allows you to thrive, not fail. That would affect not only mental health, but obesity and all these other things that kill our men and women, but also make mental health as normal as push-ups. Yeah, it is. I, I think the awareness is growing that it's a concern and more departments are starting to make our... um our health a priority. Um, we've still separated our health and we identify it in, um, in various modalities, our mental health, our physical health, our spiritual health, our emotional health, when the reality is they're all one. Um, but we've separated them within the fire service because we don't understand it enough. And most departments, regardless of how well they're doing, have not prioritized it. Right. Canada, I would say, is up there in terms of a leader, a world leader in mental health programming and initiatives. However, the best departments in Canada 
one of them, the other ones in the United States that I interviewed, was doing monthly mandatory training. Now, I don't know it's a limitation. I don't know how many times per month they're training on their mental health. Most other departments are training one time or one time per year. One time. Now, what we get is a slew of emails that nobody fucking reads. We continue to send them, but nobody fucking reads them. So there's people there doing the work. I'm not saying there aren't people doing the work. I'll give it up to all the peer support leads, all the training leads that focus on this kind of stuff. Where we failed is the marketing to firefighters. We do not know how to market, especially in the mental health in these uncomfortable areas to firefighters. Now, what I've seen is departments that have shifted entirely what they're doing to treat their teams as a sports team. We got mandatory physical training. So the focus for one of the departments was on the physical side of things. And what's happened after a decade of this type of influence of evolution of continuous work is that that now spills over into having healthy mental health, healthy emotional health, healthy spiritual health. It allows a slow evolution of adaptation and acceptance from firefighters into these uncomfortable realms. And what they did was keep everything in house. Everything in house. Some of their state laws allow them to do that. But by having a clinic inside your department where firefighters have to come for the first 30 days to get rehabilitated, to provide them with things like MRIs within the first week, regardless if you've hurt yourself on the fire truck or skiing with your buddies, they take care of you. And the money they're spending up front is no different than the money they're spending on the back end. The money they spend on workers' compensation today is the same that they spent 12 years ago. The same fucking money on workers' compensation. And so things seem to be working. We got departments in the United Kingdom, same thing. The fire chief wears the same uniform as the rookie, as the training officer, as the captain, as the maintenance guy fixing the fire trucks. They all wear the exact same uniform. This creates balance and coherence and trust. The star kicker, Messi, doesn't wear a different uniform than everybody else. Wears the same uniform. So does the coach. They all wear the same fucking uniform. And so there isn't the separation of identity that holds, the mind holds hierarchy within it, which allows the ego to come in and creates a lot of confusion, creates a lot of judgment, creates a lot of distrust within the service. There's so many simple things that we can be shifting towards and doing at a whole, at a big level. <clears throat> and we're just too scared, too unaware, and get we get too stuck in where we're at. We're not willing to take, we're not taking steps backwards, right? By continuing on the trolley, as you're saying, by, out, by not running back and changing everything, when we continue on the path, like we are on a path of destruction right now. From what I'm seeing, and this isn't every department. And there's a few departments that for whatever reason, they got you know great relationships with council, with unions, with like things are working really well for some fire departments. But the majority of departments are experiencing or are on the verge of massive fucking burnout. And some of them are already, they're in the shit and they have, there's, there's no way out. They don't know what to do. 
They can't hire firefighters enough. They don't have funding to backfill these positions because they still have them on paperwork. Some of them are just starting to get approval to hire some new staff, but not enough to cover with their means. And the ones who have been working, they're saying, you know what? I'm fucking done. I've been, I've been taking the rap for everybody else in the meantime. So I'm out of here. And so we just continue to do the same things, lobby for the same things that we've always been doing. And it's, uh, we need to start looking at other models that are happening around the world um, of change because it isn't that they're not there. You know, they're, they're there and they're, and some of them are thriving and some of them have been doing it for, for a very long time. And you may not be able to replicate what another department is doing in its totality, but there's definitely a hundred percent. There is something that you can adopt to start creating change right away, right away. Absolutely. Well, that underlines again, something I talk about, whether it's the fire service or whether it's just nations in general, there are countries that do things so well. So whether it's a country or a fire department, it's humility that is needed to go, you're actually doing this better than us. And that's okay. Can you show me how you do this? Oh, you do, you do this? And yeah, well, I'd like to borrow that from you. Beautiful. And you know, the rising tides lifts all ships, but this this ego that so many people struggle with, especially in our profession, and these these silos that are the North American Fire Service, because you mentioned the UK, that's a national service, so they have no choice but to interact with each other. But you know that is a big barrier. Now I want to be mindful of your time, so I want to bring in um, Fire to Light. We've been talking obviously a lot about the challenges. Well, you have created one opportunity for a solution as well. So talk to me about Fire to Light and how people can access that. Yeah, so it's um, we haven't launched it yet, um, but we've created a program talking about all the things we're talking about. There's a lot of organizational issues that need to change. Um, but we also need to shift into more places of acceptance and willingness to try things we're uncomfortable with, even though that's exactly what we do as firefighters do uncomfortable shit all day long. Right. <clears throat> and so the idea was to, how do we get more firefighters to create new curiosity about themselves in ways that they never have before. And so speaking the firefighter language, the idea is to introduce um, conversation around consciousness around humility into the fire service, um, providing tools, um, simple tools that we can use here, there, or anywhere. Um, it's all on video, audio. You can read it, but most firefighters won't read it. So we created methods of what of, of that, that they may actually use. Um, we're trying to help create new conversation and perspectives within the fire service. The intention is for this to be done through everyone within the fire department is best practices where any program is limited is when it comes to the fire department themselves and how they choose to implement this thing. And so the idea is to everyone it's run through an app, which is the easiest form. Everyone can put it on their phone and we move them through uh, pillars. So there's pillars of the mind, uh, pillars of the body. There's a pillar of what we call intake, which is how we internalize the external world. Um, we talk about rest and recovery, and there's a whole pillar dedicated to energy. So broadening our perspectives of who we are as individuals, let's relate that to the identity of being a firefighter and the profession that we actually do to have a new depth of understanding of how our lives are so 
interconnected and how every experience we have is connected to every experience we have. The idea is that I'm not a clinician, I'm not a doctor, I'm a firefighter and I've gone through this experience and I know what you do. I know what happens in the fire hall. I've been the guy standing on the kitchen table. I've been the guy jumping in a puddle, splashing my district chief at a training revolution, gotten shit for it, came back to the hall. I've been the boys club. I, I know the game. And too many of us are suffering. Too many of us have too, it's not even too much ego. It's just like, we don't even know how to get in touch with our emotions. And there's way too many firefighters killing themselves and becoming sick from various reasons. Like we all know the story of the firefighter who retires and they have a heart attack within the first two years of retirement. Oh, it must be shitty. <clears throat> I believe all those things contribute to our health, that our trauma is stored within our body and that we can evolve as humans to learn how to manage and deal with our health and our mental health. And so I think that this is a body of people who are left forgotten most of the time, um, who are the expectation of the public is that, well, they're the heroes. So they'll be able to figure it out when the reality is like, no, we're just humans. We do extraordinary things sometimes, but we're all human and we haven't had the space yet to fully, to fully be human in the role of being a firefighter. And so fire to light exists, um, to help firefighters become more human, to allow them to fully embrace who they are help guide them through their own evolution of healing, um, through their own journey so that they can be the best firefighter. They can be the best father, the best parent. These are the things I'm most concerned about. I want you to be the best person that you can be. The job is the job. It may change. It's going to change. It always changes. It always evolves. And so the other elements of ourself are always there. There's been this idea that, you know, your home life and your work life are separate. Well, firefighters, we've always taken the firefighter side with us, right? You're at a party. Oh, there's there's Brandon. He's a firefighter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a firefighter. Cool. And there's this emphasis of like, wow, you must be fucking special. And that's a hard thing, I think, for most of us to carry with us all the time. The ego loves it. But the rest of us is like, am I really more special than the accountant or than somebody else? Like, what is that? And then you do the hero thing and you're like, man, I'm fucked up now. Like, that was really fucking hard. And and I can't talk to anybody because I'm supposed to be this hero. I'm supposed to be on this pedestal. So it's like, no, you're not supposed to be on the pedestal. You're just doing a, you're just doing a good thing. And it's going to be really hard. And it's okay that it's hard. And it's okay that it's confusing. And it's okay that it challenges your emotions and your energy and all of those things. Um, and we need, we need you. We need you to be alive. Your kids need you to be alive. Um, you're already putting yourself at massive risk physically, but all those physical risks create massive stress uh, mentally and emotionally and spiritually. And so how do we start to build tools in our toolbox, just like we do firefighting, so that when the turmoil happens, because we don't know when it will, even though we think it never will, then we can start to manage it, and deal with it in a positive manner. And so maybe you will be off the trucks for a little bit of time as you go through this healing process of maybe a psychological injury. Maybe you will be diagnosed with PTSD. The chances of you being diagnosed with PTSD are very high compared to most people. 
So why wouldn't you take the effort, get ahead of the game to do something about it now? So if it does show up, you're better prepared. And what if the effort you put in now allows it never to happen? Then you don't have to go through it. And that's okay. Isn't that a fucking good thing? I don't want to get type 2 diabetes. So I wake my ass up every morning and I hit the fucking gym. I take care of what I put in my mouth every single day. And sometimes I have a piece of pizza and a burger and a donut, but I don't do it all the time because I give a shit about my body. Because one of my main goals is I want to water ski behind my boat when I'm 90 years old. It's the same reason why I meditate every single day. It's the same reason why I pray. And I will preface that I am not religious by any stretch. I don't practice any specific religion, but I have faith in the unknown. I focus on my death so that I can live the best life today, now, moving forward. And so this is what Fire to Light is. is. It's me and my experience sharing it with the world of firefighting because what I hear and now what I know from the extensive research that I've done is that we need fucking help in this area. No one's teaching us about this shit. And we're barely being taught about mental health. And when we are, it's from one perspective that's needed. I'm not saying it's not. We need the clinicians. So here's an interesting thing that we found. All the departments that have psychologists or psychiatrists on staff had much more positive connotation to their interviews when they spoke about mental health. It wasn't that all of those departments were thriving with their mental health programming, but their understanding, the awareness around this thing of mental health seemed to be greater than most other departments who didn't have a psychiatrist on staff. So we need that perspective. However, trust was one of the other themes that came up in the lack of trust in firefighters. I got on a crew of 11 people and I know one individual on our crew who speaks or who goes to see a therapist on a regular basis. Most of them have not seen a therapist. There's two of them now. Sorry. That's a low percentage point. And so it's like building the trust. We trust in each other, but you know, even if we talk about our incidents, because we have that uncommon commonality, we may not be talking about our emotions in relation to that incident. Or we're not sharing in depth. One, because we're not comfortable. Two, because we don't know how to draw it out of each other. Three, we're not ready to draw it out of each other because we're not professionals. We don't have the extensive amount of training that most of these psychiatrists have. So we need that field, but there needs to be a bridge. We need to bridge that gap. So trusting in firefighters is what we do. We're seeing a lot of departments that are dropping old models of peer support because of vicarious trauma from the peer support team. (laughs) So, you know, we know we trust each other. So we have to create better avenues and more synapses between clinical help, different types of alternative therapies and the firefighters themselves. And so this is where fire to light comes in the game is to help be those bridges and to help fill some of those gaps. And, you know, it probably is not going to work for everybody, but I hope that it works for some. Beautiful. Well, for people listening, where can they find fire to light the, the website and also where are you on social media? Yeah, uh, firetolight.org is the website. You can check it out there. There is a contact button. So you can click that if you want to get in touch with me. 
and uh, brandon.r.evans on Instagram. That's the best place to uh, the best place to find me. Well, Brandon, I want to say thank you. This has been such a unique conversation. Your journey before the fire service, through and out the other side, is one that I haven't really heard before. And this, I mean, everyone's mm. story is unique. But as you said, there are a lot of similar conversations. You've got the kind of counseling conversation. You've got now a big psychedelic conversation as well. But this, you know, this is something that kind of I've been very, very aware of, the kind of kindness, compassion, humility element that you also as an adjunct to whatever therapies you're using and being aware that you know that we were once very fit very kind compassionate service oriented men and women and then the job happened you know and i think that highlighting the importance of our own health of our own relationships being healthy that is paramount and what we do is a profession it's a burning desire but it is a job that ultimately our own health our family's health is the, the main reason why we're here you know we want the community to be safe so our family is safe so i want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time but also leading us through your fascinating journey to where we are today well thanks for having me on i'm happy to i'm, I'm happy to share it. uh i love talking i love talking about it and um yeah i mean you know it's the whole reason why i started doing what what i'm doing you know what i mean i i've found solace in what i'm doing and sharing my stories it's therapy for me sharing my story is therapy it makes me feel better um it, it makes me a better person every single day and so all of our journeys are unique so you know anything i can do to help and to move things along um i think we've seen i've seen enough people that have shared their stories that once they crack that that hard shell of vulnerability it's a fucking game changer and they're happier for it. Everyone else is around them is happier for it. Um, and it's, it's just scary. It's scary as hell. But once you do it, you're like, oh, that ain't so bad. I'll rock into almost any house fire. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'll go into it. Someone else thinks it's terrified. I'm like, no, man, it's going to be really cool. Like, we're going to see some cool stuff when we're in there. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so the first time it's scary. But then once you do it again and do it again and do it again, it opens the door. And so trying to make some... I'm going to say it. I'm, you know, trying to make some more comfortable men is the reality. I'm not excluding women. This is for everybody. Um, but because the male dominance within our profession is still over 90% of the firefighters around the world are men. Um, it's a code that needs to be cracked as we dive into the, our ancestry and to what that means in the character of being a man, even though it's, it varies from person to person, but this vulnerability piece is huge and it's it's a fucking lifesaver that's it you know we need to each take our own responsibility for ourselves and this gets lost in government environments and union environments it gets lost and it isn't the union's responsibility it's your responsibility and we lean on everybody else and we need their help but we also need to put the fucking work in straight up <laughs>